0: is happening trp podcast listeners thank you for carving out a little bit of time for us whether you are on a drive to work or at the gym if gyms are still a thing that people go to or if you're running around the neighborhood or or maybe maybe just sitting on the couch relaxing you've got a few moments to yourself and you thought hey i think it would be pretty fun to listen to uh, what trp is up to either way Uh, Thank you for for spending some time with us. I've gotten into a little bit of a rhythm here over the last few weeks where I will preach the sermon on Sunday evenings. We have been gathering in public for four weeks now, I think. Uh, We're outside, socially distant. We're wearing masks. um, And it's been good. Um, A good number of our community has felt safe to To join us again. Others will watch online. We've been attempting to stream our services on Facebook, and that has had a little bit of glitches, but I'll jump into the studio on Monday or Tuesday and re-preach the sermon for you guys, uh, because we want it to sound nice, but also, um, you know, you're a different audience. So here I am. This is week 6 I'm 97% sure. Week 6 in our sermon series on James the Sage. And actually, this week is a little bit different, uh, as you'll see. I, I don't really unpack much in the letter of James. I really just kind of take my cues from an initial phrase. So here is the extended passage. This is chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. I'm actually going to read through the end of chapter 1. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. I'm reading the NIV, by the way. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You could also translate that word there, righteousness, as justice. Uh, some, Some people choose to do that. Therefore, James writes, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word of God for the people of God. Now, as you can tell, this passage is absolutely loaded with practical wisdom that is both highly significant and immensely practical for our particular moment in time. Listen again to some of these really powerful lines that that James writes. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I I don't know about you, but that is not how I would be able to define myself if I were to be, say, scrolling down my Facebook feed or looking at news headlines or sometimes having conversations with family members around the dinner table, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Or again, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. James has this massive undercurrent throughout the letter about our speech practices and how if we do not keep a a tight rein on our tongue, then maybe we're not quite living out this Jesus ethic in the best way possible. He concludes this chapter in one of my favorite verses that's challenging and also oddly encouraging. It says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think that we usually privilege that last phrase there, and I think we probably wrongly interpret it a lot of times, um, but this thought of caring for the orphans and the widows the, the marginalized the oppressed this is what religion is um you know we have these little quips where we'll say it's not about religion it's relationship that that sort of thing which okay i mean i get what you're saying but also uh, james coming in here saying this is actually what the religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless it's, it's this to to do something to care for people well. You might say to love your neighbor. and Any of these lines that I've just read is worth an entire sermon. More than that, any of these lines is worth our diligent and prayerful and lifelong application. In fact, I, we probably could have done a, a five or six week sermon series just on verses 19 through 27. But as I sat down to think about this week's Talk. I I was transfixed by the very first phrase, which the NIV sort of obscures a bit in its translation. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. And this this caught my attention. A, A better translation would probably be, You must understand this, my beloved. Or, You know this, my beloved brothers and sisters that word beloved it's important a similar phrase actually appeared earlier in verse 16 and again the NIV tones it down which might be why i missed it the first time around or why i didn't really spend too much time thinking about it but uh, it has james interjecting don't be deceived my dear brothers and sisters and you get a sense of what james is after here it's familial it's relational Uh, It's not hierarchical. James is not flexing his leadership muscles here. But it also seems to hide the extent of what James is talking about because it buries that term agape toy, beloved. It's so meaningful and poignant and necessary, especially in Christian dialogue when it's possible to make enemies of brothers and sisters. That adjective, beloved, it, it grounds us. For James, it's part of an undercurrent that's running throughout his entire letter that is sometimes easy to miss, and I'm going to go ahead and point it out for us. This is this is the thing that we miss oftentimes. James has a deeply pastoral concern. He cares for the people to whom he is writing, and he cares about what they are dealing with. He keeps telling them over and over, you are loved, and he's pleading with them, don't be deceived, you must understand this, my beloved. I've already said many times that the situation that James's Jewish Christian audience in the first century is going through is markedly different from our own. They are facing economic exploitation in a first century Jewish culture. They are being subverted and oppressed by the rich. And this might just be a term that includes people outside of the walls of their faith community, or it might be a subset of people within their religious community. James's pleading is rooted in the fact that they are being exploited, that there is injustice that is taking place, and his pleading is also embedded in relationship. He says, I know what you are facing, my beloved brother's and sisters. And I couldn't stop thinking about this phrase in light of my current calling as a pastor, one who is privileged enough to stand in front of a congregation of people or jump into the studio and preach to podcast listeners. And I have this opportunity to share something with you that is meaningful, something hopefully of some significance that will help to remind you of what we as a church are doing or who we are serving, uh, to remind us of our calling to love God and to love our neighbors, to remind us of our status as beloved brothers and sisters, children of the Most High God. So here's where I landed in my sermon prep, and perhaps this is a bit self-indulgent. But I began to reflect on if I was writing a letter, if I was addressing our situation as a community, what would I say to you, my beloved brothers and sisters? What would I interject with pleading, saying, don't be deceived, you must understand this. And this is how I would like to frame my comments uh, for us this week. As a letter of sorts that encapsulates my heart for you and for your spiritual growth at this very moment. So you can think of what is about to happen as my own interjection in the midst of this sermon series that is spurred on by James's pastoral concerns for his community in a first century Jewish culture. These are my pastoral concerns for us in our very different 21st century American context for folks that are here with us in Salisbury in this rural Uh, Community, what my heartbeat is for us. Okay, so here's how I'm going to go ahead and and do this. I'm going to rip off some of James's language to to help facilitate this. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. You must understand this. In fact, I believe it's foundational to everything. You are loved, just as you are. You are known you are enough, and you are loved. By me, yes, absolutely. By our community, I believe so. I hope so. But also, and much more importantly, by God. You are loved. You are known. You are enough. As a three on the Enneagram, this is difficult for me to say, much less believe. we supposedly as threes, driven by performance, and our self-worth is enmeshed in our acceptance and affirmation. So hearing that I am loved is hard to swallow on most days, but I want to start here because it's true and because we are constantly hearing the opposite in our culture, and I believe it's slowly or maybe not so slowly killing us. In various forms and through various mediums, we hear you're not smart enough. You're not working hard enough. You're not thin enough. You're not a good enough parent. You're not good enough at your job. And what even is your job? Couldn't you be doing more? You're not making enough. You're not producing enough. You're not learning enough. You're not reading enough. You're not rich enough. You're not dateable. You're not satisfied. You're not happy. You're past your prime. You never reached your potential. You don't fit in here or anywhere. You're alone. No one supports you. No one cares. You're not straight enough. You're not Pure enough, you're not orthodox enough, you don't believe the right things, you're not strong enough, you're not you're not good enough, you're not worth enough, you're not loved. These seem to be the dominant voices of our culture, which whether you're a three on the Enneagram or not, we sort of have bought into this idea that our self-worth is about our production or our Performance. In fact, when we first meet people, and this is pointed out a lot, one of the first things that we ask them is, what do you do? As if them telling us their job would indicate to us their worth. Or even if we want to continue talking with them. We, we often base our self-worth on how we compare, on how we produce, on how we contribute to society. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. This is not the gospel. In the midst of a pretty complex argument that many scholars and interpreters have struggled with for centuries, the Apostle Paul writes these treasured lines in perhaps one of the most theologically loaded and rhetorically powerful chapters in the Bible. It's Romans chapter 8, and he writes this, so what are we to say about these things. And again, remember the the things that he's referring to are coming before this, and we're just jumping right into the middle of, of context. Not really a good practice, but you'll see where I'm going with this. So what are we going to say about these things? He writes, if God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? Again, this is more insider language that Paul uses in this letter. And actually, as we turn the page from chapter 8 in Romans into chapters 9 through 11, he really unpacks this idea of of election. I would encourage you guys to go go look at that and read that. And I would also encourage you maybe not to explain away so much of it. Um, For those of us that have spent time within the church, we kind of have— this way to decode what Paul is saying, that really forces us to read against the grain of what is obvious. Okay, so maybe just just go and read and and see, see what you come away with there. So he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It's God who acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Jesus Christ who died, even more, who was raised and who also is at God's right hand. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. And now here's the bit that I really wanted to get to. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In the Common English Bible, this is how they translate this next phrase, in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. Paul is saying in Christ, through Christ, you are loved just as you are. You are known. You are enough. You are loved and nothing will separate you from his love. You don't need to produce more or do more or have more or be more. You are loved. Breathe that in wherever you are. If you're running around the neighborhood with some earbuds in, if you're in your car on your way to work, if you're uh, just you know sitting and, and enjoying, breathe that in. Allow yourself to believe that you are loved, to accept it, to internalize it, and also to live in light of it, to share it with others. If there are any closet theologians looking to critique my soteriology, which here is fancy talk for my views on salvation, then I'm going to go ahead and add this too, because some of you guys might be freaking out at this moment. Don't be deceived, my beloved. When we understand this, when we understand how deeply we are loved, we will not rest on our laurels. We will not become complacent and lackadaisical. We will not sit back and wait. When we understand the radical, inclusive love of Jesus, when we understand that nothing separates us from him, I believe we will go after Jesus with everything that we have. It will not be a manipulation or a guilt-induced response that so many of us know well from our time in the church. Instead, because of who Jesus is, we will become someone who loves the outcast, we will become someone who fights for justice, we will become someone who is generous, we will become someone who announces good news to the mom who is working herself to death, and to the teen who doesn't quite know how they identify, and the thinker who has been ostracized from every other Christian community because of their questions and doubts. We will be able to announce good news to the person who is riddled with guilt and shame. The former churchgoer who has walked away from all of it because the image of God they received did not leave much room for them to be a part of this wondrous calling to follow the reconciling and redemptive and hopeful God of the universe who is making all things new. Somehow we have determined that all things is an exclusive category and some people just don't fit. When we understand the love of Jesus, we can rightly counter the narrative that limits and reduces the love of God. You must understand this, my beloved. The gospel is not merely something to be received or something to be believed. It is something to participate in. Through Jesus, God is redeeming and restoring all things. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. It has changed and is changing Everything And the call is not merely for us to believe it. It's for us to participate in this restorative work. Our gospel, therefore, is to introduce others to what Jesus is up to and to invite them in to participate along with us, to follow Christ as we follow Christ, not just in our mental ascent, but in our lives of love and gratitude. This, I believe, has a very practical outworking in our country in this moment where so much is polarized. We've talked about this a lot. In fact, we keep coming back to it because everywhere you look, we see sides. We have people taking a position on this side or that side, and there's not much room for nuance in between. But when we understand and when we embrace the love of Jesus, I, I think that we will begin to see the hurt of our black and brown brothers and sisters, and we will be moved by it. For many of us, that means we will consider our prejudice, our privilege, our ingrained white supremacy, our racism. I keep hearing that this whole... Uh, racial issue in America is a media-driven narrative, that it's all fabricated. But when I sit down with people who don't look like me, and when I hear their feelings articulated out loud, it's not a fabrication. It is not something that is simply and solely a lie driven by the media. And it's my hope that the love of Jesus will allow us to build bridges with others and to see the hurt that people are experiencing. When we understand and embrace the love of Jesus, we will also see the hurt of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and we will be moved to action, moved perhaps to consider how the church has wronged them, moved to leave our seats of comfort and sit with those who have been marginalized to announce their inclusion and acceptance, that they too are recipients of the love of Jesus. When we understand this, it will not just be theoretical. It will not just be postulation and hypotheses. It will actually be lived out in the way that we love people. When we see the hurt of our immigrant brothers and sisters, we will say something. We will do something. We will not reduce their humanity to a political slogan for a specific candidate who we hope will win an election in a couple of months. Wherever oppression occurs, when we understand and embrace the love of Jesus, I believe that we will be invested now, I've, I've outlined just the most obvious and the most divisive issues in our current moment, but as followers of Jesus, I believe that our eyes can be and will be open to see oppression and our potential participation in it in so many different places. And I'll go ahead and throw this in here too for those of you that might feel uncomfortable at the moment. Sometimes it's the widest, most most middle-class person who is wronged who who suffers abuse, who are hurting, who need an advocate. And we're called to love them too. We're called to love people well, all people. There is no discrimination here. We will see the walls that have been constructed that affect real people. And because Jesus has broken down the walls, we will break them down too. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That is a word for us to consider because it compels action. And it's not just a have-to statement. It's not just a guilt-inducing statement. It's, it's not a have-to, it's a get-to statement. We are empowered and encouraged, and we have the privilege and opportunity to look after orphans and widows and those on the margins and the outskirts who have faced real oppression, real injustice, real hurt. This, however, it stands in contrast to what we're often told. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Consumerism and individualism is the American way, but it's not the way of Jesus because this isn't all about you. It never has been. Redemption is so much bigger than making Jesus your personal savior. Jesus is after the entire cosmos, and that includes the people who don't look like you or think like you or share your commitments. We are all image bearers. We have all been created in the image and likeness of the Most High God, and Jesus' death and resurrection includes all just as much as it includes me or you. When when we turn inward, we miss so many opportunities that are right in front of us to be engaged, to be ambassadors, to be conduits of this love an acceptance that is offered through Jesus, and not just love and acceptance, but this this restoration, this reconciliation, this um, making right. We have so many opportunities to participate in the gospel, yet we miss it so often because we're focused on our own issues. Don't be deceived. In Jesus, it's not about us first or our family first. It's about putting others ahead of ourselves. It's about being the least. It's about serving. It's about risking. It's about the community. It's about new creation. Parents, I think that this is a beautiful image for us to present to our kids. And I know that kind of, it rubs against the grain when we say it's not about our families first because our entire lives are structured around our kids. When is soccer practice? When's the next game? What about the school schedule? When is PTA? We have all of these different things and and by the end of it, we will have run ourselves ragged. But when we can present this image that it's not about us first, that raising our children is an invitation to demonstrate to them that we are least, that we serve, that we put others ahead of ourselves. This is a beautiful image to present to our kids, and I think when they buy into it by our very example, it will change things. Single people, uh, folks without kids, this is a beautiful image to model for families who have become preoccupied with themselves, as a dad, this is, this is a very real temptation to live into this American way where it's all about what lives and breathes on my one and a half acres of land or whatever. And for people that have a different priority, you can model what it looks like to put others before yourselves. I've been reading Rob Bell's new book, Everything is Spiritual. I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't love it. It's a bit indulgent, but he's got a couple of lines that have been moderately helpful. Um, But as his title suggests, this book of his is, is a manifesto that all of life is connected, that it's all spiritual, hence the title, Everything is Spiritual. But think about this, your politics, your ethics, your vocation, your relationships, your text threads your social media accounts. There is no part of your life over which Jesus doesn't whisper, it's mine. And there's no part of your life over which we should be protective. Your faith, it cannot be limited to just you or just your family. For many of you, this is not what you have seen or heard in in a setting like this, In a in a sermon or in a church type setting. It's very much about you because when the lights go down and the pastor says uh, it's time to make commitments, if you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand, it it becomes very much about you as an individual. I think there's just so much more to it. Don't be deceived, my beloved. You shouldn't be faulted because we, the church, because we have failed to make Jesus compelling, because we've reduced his message to your personal salvation. We've reduced it to an altar call that's oftentimes motivated by fear. We've reduced it to... Going to heaven, or just wait because when you die, it'll all be okay. We've reduced it in so many ways. You must understand this. To follow Jesus is a beautiful way to live, even if there is no then, even if there is no somewhere out there, even if there is no next. We've sold the gospel as something less than, usually as a ticket to heaven. And this is wrong on multiple levels because. Really, it's all happening right now. Heaven is invading earth in the smallest of ways through us and through every good and hopeful deed that demonstrates the love of Jesus. How exciting is that? How compelling is that, that we get to participate in this massive move of restoration by the God of the universe? Now, I'm going to give you some four instances just to consider, and and some of them will seem strange because they're so foreign to the way that we think, but let's just go ahead and experiment here. Heaven is invading earth when you care about the environment and when you live differently because of it. Heaven is invading earth when you see oppression and you respond Heaven is invading earth when you are kind to the people around you, to the people who may not deserve it, to the people who have wronged you. Heaven is invading earth when when you don't post that dumb meme on Facebook because it will only work to divide and it implicitly claims that you're smarter than everyone else, particularly those who disagree with you. Heaven is invading earth when you work for the betterment of our world. Heaven is invading earth when you apologize, when you admit wrongs, when you work for reconciliation. Heaven is invading earth when you forgive. It's all happening right now. It's all happening because of Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection, and because of our participation in the gospel. It's happening through us. I've I've struggled with how to to word this because I know that this one's going to be personal. But I felt like I had to include this here because it's so prevalent. I hear something in this vein a lot. But don't be deceived, my beloved. Your church hurts as real as they are, as painful as they are they are not indicative of the heart of Jesus. Uh, again, your, your pain that you've experienced, it is real. Your anger is warranted. Uh, the way that you maybe have walked away from organized religion, I get it. And perhaps even when you hear me say, heaven is invading earth, when you forgive, maybe you're immediately reminded of a situation that feels impossible, or, or maybe even unwise to let go of. And I I, I don't want to posture as though I'm just telling you to, to come back to the church. That's not what I mean. But, but please understand this. Jesus and many of us are indignant that you have been hurt, that you have been robbed of untold joy, that you have been forced to see Jesus through the lens of abuse or shame or hurt or fear. As a minister, this is something that angers me so much when we misrepresent the love of Jesus in such an egregious way that people walk away from all of it and equate our failings or the failings of this church or that church with the actual mind of Christ. This is not how it, it should be. The situation that you have been through, it is not how it should be. And and I'll go on record and say there will be a reckoning. Your wrong will be righted. But in this moment, what I want you to hear and maybe what I want you to consider is something altogether different. I want you to hear love and restoration and hope. And maybe what I want you to hear as well is resurrection, a life from a death. And what okay. I want you to hear is an invitation What I want you to hear is is a second chance. What I want you to hear is the truth. You are loved just as you are. You are known. You are enough. You are loved. Those leaders, those members, those people, those Christians, they don't get the final word and they don't speak for King Jesus. To, to all of us, we must understand this. We are loved. This is fundamental, but it doesn't stop there. We must let that love radicalize us. We must let that love motivate us. We must let that love compel us. TRP, I've been saying this for years, and I still believe it to this day. They are, there are many people who need to hear this message, and maybe some of you are listening right now. You're a podcast listener. You, you're sort of tangentially related to this community. You appreciate the, the teachings or, or the, the thought-provoking nature of the things that, that we say. But maybe there's a real hesitation for you to actually trusting people again, to actually partnering with other frail human beings who might hurt you. I've been saying this for years and years. This message, as as obvious as it is, has become more radical within the church, and that should not be. I've also been thinking this for years, but I haven't said it out loud uh, until this past weekend. There are also many people... Like, so there's many people that need this message, but there's also many people who are not, they're not bold enough to carry out this message. It doesn't fit their understanding of God. It doesn't fit their understanding of salvation. It doesn't fit their understanding of love. And quite honestly, it doesn't fit their priorities. TRP, it's not our work to convince them. But for those who have yet to hear it, for those who... Have maybe long forgotten the real core of the Christian faith. TRP, I would ask that that we might become a voice in the night. Don't be deceived, my beloved. We are called to this work, and when we lock arms to announce this gospel of love and restoration and and participation with God of experienced resurrection this gospel that is compelling and good on its own, not with, without something that comes later, just here and now, it, it's good and it can stand. When we announce it to the world around us, may we be reminded, may we be empowered, may we be compelled and excited once again of the truth that we know we are loved and we are invited in. And yes, we have work to do with the king who looks upon us and says, you are mine.